You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is the fourth installment of a four-part mini-series on well-being. In the first installment, I was joined by my co-founder Jesse Lee, Dr. Divya Gioti, an ethnographer, and Dr. Ach Advaryu, an economist, to debate how should well-being be defined and measured on production floors. In the second installment, we shifted to the conversation to the factory level. When it comes to well-being on the production floor, factory management have an important role to play. So what drives the behavior of factory management? What are their incentives? In the third episode, we talked about subcontracting. Research from Human Rights Watch has shown that people working in subcontracted facilities often fare worse than people working in larger, more visible garment factories. And that's fair. But conventional logic usually goes like this. Better oversight and regulation leads to better outcomes for people. In other words, more visibility equals more well-being. But is this a fair assumption? In this fourth and final installment, the conversation is all about social compliance auditing. Brands are under pressure from consumers and increasingly also legally obligated to make sure that the people making their products are treated decently. But brands don't do production themselves. They work with manufacturers. So brands have codes of conduct that they expect their suppliers to abide by. Brands check whether suppliers are abiding by that code of conduct through social compliance audits. Today's episode brings together an interesting mix of perspectives. I'll let them introduce themselves fully in a minute, but briefly, we have Muliawan Laij, Senior Social Sustainability Manager for TAL Apparel, which is a manufacturer producing across Asia, an apparel manufacturer producing across Asia. We have Venkat Rao, Chief Compliance Officer of Shahi Exports, India's largest garment manufacturer. We have Shivam Punjia, founder and creative director of Benno, a handbag brand producing in India that's taken a very progressive approach to social compliance. And last but not least, Andre Ragu, CEO of HAP. HAP provides organizations of all types with accountable, comprehensive, industry-relevant, and verifiable approach to accurately measuring a manufacturing facility or farm supply chain standard performance. He's also a former social compliance auditor. Together, we talk about whether they think social compliance audits help make factories better places to work and why. We ended up talking quite a bit about intent. What do we want to achieve through social compliance audits? Is it about assurance or should it be a tool for collaboration and conversation or both? Also, what's their take on how we could do social compliance audits better? This episode is thanks to a collaboration with the Asia Garment Hub. The Asia Garment Hub is a one-stop shop for industry data, news, resources, and tools. It connects people and organizations from across the sector within a single vision to make it fairer, more sustainable, and more competitive. Becoming a member is free. Link for more information in the show notes. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
I want to kick things off with some in, by letting you introduce yourselves. And Andre, let's start with you. So um, I work with HAP. I'm, I'm dialing in from New York. And, and um, what we focus in on at HAP is traceability and social assessments. Uh, but from the perspective of claims that global brands working in complex supply chains make. Uh, so our interest is really around looking at the evidence or the information that supports the claims, whether they are a responsible product supply chain cl a claim or it, uh, it's a material origins claim, and, and really working backwards to see if there is evidence and, and um, information or proof, for a better sense, uh, to support those claims. And, and the reason we do it that way, which is a, a little bit different than sort of has been the prevailing industry focus is that uh, that approach actually allows us to get closer to understanding the intention behind those claims and whether, you know, the messaging that's going out actually matches the, the work that's being done. So I actually got into this business uh, starting as an auditor. Um, I have quite a diverse background that I can say somewhat um, uh, has some relationship to the type of work that we do working with manufacturers and, and farmers and, and, and others alike, uh, that um, a part of my family background is, are, are, is in India. Uh, and so a lot of uh, my, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, ancestors working in rural agricultural sort of settings. And then the other part of my family is from Brazil, right? And so it's <laughs> sort of two different uh, sides of the world. Um, two very different cultures, and 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 so I got into auditing really to kind of understand a lot more about you know how things sort of intersect, and and more about the sort of you know sort of global supply chain and things of that nature. And I was able to over the span of uh, twenty plus years work my way uh, from being an actual field auditor. Uh, to being the, the head of a, a global audit practice for a, a large commercial firm, um, or at, at that time, the largest social audit commercial firm. Um, and uh, sort of the evolution of my journey was really kind of looking at, you know, the things that uh, I think I've done right and the things that I've also done wrong and kind of having an honest conversation with myself uh, about what the future could look like uh, and decided to sort of, take the next chapter, which was taking what I've learned uh, and evolving it into something that um, was a different view of what the social audit industry could look like. And so by forming HAP, it wasn't about creating a, a another competitor uh, or another company sort of doing the same thing. It was really about creating a, a beacon or a, a lighting or a starting point for other people interested in, in, in getting involved, you know, just like I did 20 years ago in the social audit industry, to take a different look at what the industry could be and to have sort of a fresh restart uh, informing, you know, the work that they do and things of that nature. Uh, hello, everyone, gentlemen. So my name is Muliawan, but people just call me Mul to make it easier and, uh, yeah, simple to say it. I'm based in Indonesia. Uh, I'm working in uh, TAL Apparel. We are Hong Kong-based uh, manufacturing for garment mostly. And uh, we have factories in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in China, and one in Ethiopia as well. And I'm, I'm working in a sustainability corporate, focusing on the social labor compliance 
So supporting a factory to make sure that they uh, reach their requirements and also uh, yeah, generating some uh, internal strategy and uh, KPI for the factories and helping them to grow into a more sustainable factory actually. Um, I have been working in TIA for 10 years as for, for now. Okay. Hi everyone, my name is Shivan Punjia. Um, I founded a brand called Benno. About eight years ago, we started off as a social enterprise focusing on um, conscious manufacturing in women's wear. Uh, we are based out of New York City. However, I recently moved to Bombay, um, so I'm going to be here for a couple of years. Um, our goal has always been um, looking beyond um, audits and like the traditional ways that factories and manufacturers have been um, looked at in terms of their work. Um, and we wanted to go a little bit more intimate into the lives of the garment workers and artisans that we do work with. Uh, I'm Venkat. I am based out of Bengaluru, Karnataka, India. I am the group's uh, chief compliance officer of Shahi Exports Private Limited. This is a million dollar company started way back in the year 1974 with just about eight to 10 machines and started by a lady. So this conversation also is being led by a lady. So the lady is in the diverse seat. Our workforce comprises of close to 120 thousand workers of which more than 75 percent are women we operate out of uh, nine states in india we have just started our global footprint we are establishing units in bangladesh essentially we are manufacturing close to half a million garment a day that's the scale at which we operate thank you very much for sharing a little bit about your stories let's talk about social compliance audits this organization believes that uh, Social compliance is not an agenda of compliance. It's an agenda of governance. Well, for me, I think uh, audit is a tool. So you can use it wisely to help the factories grow, or you can point out just mistakes. I have been working like uh, auditing corrective action firm for years, and I still see the same thing. You have sophisticated factories, but if the intention of the auditor is to find mistake, for sure you can point out 40, 50 findings in the report and still saying that this factory is not doing good enough. But the question is, does that finding that you found really matters in terms of like showing how the factory really are? Do they have like management system in place? Do they really grow from time to time? This is what I think it's missing currently in the industry. Because if you, you just use the same checklist or the same tool or the same topic to dissect the factory from years to years, you certainly will not see those growing the development of a factory from the time they started to understand what compliance is, what sustainability is about, and whether they really sincerely want to grow and demonstrate that from year to year, actually. So I think this is like auditing has been used as one side of yeah, transactional relationship rather than, you know, growing relationship. This is what I'm missing. 
So it's like a tool to facilitate this transaction as opposed to a tool to grow the relationship from something transactional to something more. Is that right? Yeah, I would prefer going there, actually. One thing that social compliances do is highlight room for improvement, where things are going wrong, perhaps, and where things are going right. But I think the the follow-up step to that is something that I've always been kind of um, curious about is who actually holds the accountability um, to ensure that the social compliance audit findings are actually being implemented. And I know that, you know, we do these audits every so often to keep them regular, but in the time that lapses in between, who's the accountability factor? And I think that's something that always try to ask myself um, and ask the factors that we work with. But I, I think that you guys are kind of driving at the same point, which is like, well, okay, you have different entities who are doing different things in the supply chain. And just because you're checking doesn't mean that the behavior is changing. And Shivam, you didn't go as far to, as saying like, well, it's a, a f- facilitating a transactional relationship. But I think maybe implied implicit in this word transactional relationship is the idea of accountability i i, I don't know yeah i i think i echo that most of as well uh, but if you kind of step back and you ask yourself why uh, i i think you will understand that in, in an environment where there's a mix of ideals where there's a mix of intentions, where there is a collision of cultures, there is globalization, there, there are all sorts of things going, going on, and you don't have a clear definition of what the intention is supposed to be or what people's intentions are. It, it's very, uh, I think, easy uh, to come to the conclusion of why you have so many different outcomes happening. And and while you hear a lot of discussion about, you know, um, plussing up efficiency and, and plussing up, uh, you know, I mean, uh, reducing fatigue and, and sort of all of those operational things, you don't hear the same around uh, discussion around messaging or clarity of intention or clarity of purpose. And, and so what you have is you have an increase taking place around things that people already don't understand. It's almost as though the industry has chosen to double down on on on, on messaging that's not clear to begin with. Uh, and, and at the same token, um, not much effort is going into uh, helping to, to sort of separate and, and, and create clarity around what is the intention and, and the purpose of what we're really doing. We don't have a clear definition of intent. Like, what exactly do you mean by that? And I also want to ask you to maybe speak to this a little bit on a personal level, because one of the things I was hoping to have you share a little bit about as well is, you know, during your time working as a social compliance auditor, um, you know, what some of your frustrations, well, first of all, what kind of social compliance audits were you doing and where, but what were your frustrations with with that experience, because maybe that's linked to what you just said about, you know, statement of intent. I don't know. I'm sus- I, I suspect, not sure. <laughs> well, I think the way I would look at it is that you hear a lot of buzzwords. Uh, in particular, you hear a lot of people talking about um, impact, right, and, and, and wanting to make impact. 
Um, but you don't hear or, or a lot of or leading with purpose, but you don't hear a lot of discussion around leading with intention, right? And and so in t- intent versus impact are, are not the same. And misunderstanding the difference often is what leads to a, a conflict in, in, in understanding. You know, I, I usually say that um, intent is how you think and feel, right? And is how well you, ma- you know, versus impact is how well you manage the the process or perform the action when you when you don't have clarity and common language around the intention of what people are attempting to do then you're going to have the same thing on the back end right you're going to have results that you're trying to measure against what you perceive to be the intention and that may have not been their intention at all from the outset um, and so, so therefore, if I look at this at a very personal level, um, you know, for me, it became incredibly frustrating uh, when I was in the social audit, you know, as a social auditor, sort of helming, you know, a, a large organization and thinking that you are, you know, making your best efforts and, and, and seeing this sort of research. But when I kind of sat down and said, you know, let me kind of clear the slate and, and really look at this objectively and try to understand it. It was then when I, when I really looked at the root of the problem that I began to understand that, wait a minute, um, everyone is actually doing something different. And so therefore, when it comes to the result, there is a totally different perception of what the result should be and, and what it is that we're, we're trying to accomplish. And so when you mix then the collision of cultures, the collision of interests, um, messaging and language that is not clear. You know, I think it's incredibly important to call things what they are. You know, marketing language in this area doesn't help to, to, to clarify the intent of what's going on. And also for, for um, uh, broad tools that were used in the early stages of this industry to, to help kind of define a common way to do things are not necessarily a the best choice when you start to get to micro specific is- issues as an industry matures right and and develops and now you need to be focused on issue specific matters but you're trying to cr- kind of um, uh, move forward a one size fits all you know sort of sort of language and, and message and, and and so you can see how this complexity can arrive to a conclusion where simply everyone is not on the same page, right? You know, everyone is viewing, seeing, understanding it from a totally different perspective. So it's interesting. So I hear different things. I hear, okay, social audit is not the same as accountability. I hear social audit could be a tool of partnership and relationship building, but it's mostly used as a way of reinforcing an already transactional relationship. And now I hear something about intent and lack of clarity about what it is that we want to achieve with social compliance audits. And this is interesting because I think the number one, like when you're in, when you, if you talk to like, I don't know, an activist, a labor rights activist. One of the first things 
at least this has been my experience. I don't know if this has been your experience as well. But one of the first things people will say is like, oh, yeah, social compliance audits, they haven't really worked. But the reason for that is because they're not legally enforceable. So if we just make these things legally enforceable, that will that will uh, that will that will fi fix everything. The problem is that they're voluntary, right, that the brands are. Um, you know, coming up with these social compliance, you know, codes of conduct, and then they're sending auditors to go and check, but none of it is legally, none of it is legally enforceable. And this isn't something I've heard any one of you mention or talk about. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts? Kim, I'll take that. Uh, see, I'll tell you first, uh, it's quite incorrect to say that uh, social audit findings are not legally enforceable. Social audit findings are governed on employment laws of the host country. Okay. Findings, if they are adverse or non-compliant with the law, entail prosecution. Yeah. So this is interesting because what, I, what my question was really about um, laws in countries where brands are operating, making brands responsible legally for social compliance of their supply chains. And what you're saying is, well, actually, all of these national, you know, in India, we have these laws already and we are accountable to them. Right. OK, I was just going to go back. Um, I mean, touching on what Venkatji just said a little bit, but Kim also going back to your original question about um, intent. And I think what Andre mentioned got me thinking just now. We're a very small brand. Um, we can hardly afford to probably do our own audit in a very formal way with a lot of our factories because they are so huge. But what I have heard from companies and brands that are larger is one of the biggest intent behind getting these compliances done is because retailers, other members, other stakeholders require it, right? So it's kind of like that's the reason they're getting it done. It's not necessarily from a brand's ethos, and the intent isn't because they necessarily want to be disinvested in that process, but rather in order for them to continue their business, they're required to do it. So I think that becomes one aspect of the intent. And I think what Venkatji is saying is, you know, there's laws that are already existing, but I think these brands don't are not connected to that legal system in which the factories are working within, but rather who they need to kind of appease with this information. So I think there's a misalignment a little bit with like the communication um, with what brands are supposed to be doing and what actually is happening. I'm intrigued by that statement, actually. I was thinking, like, mm, probably this person don't really know or understand how social compliance audit work, actually. By, by which statement? Uh, that that uh, making it legal could solve the problem. I don't think so. I don't think so. After listening to the edited version of this conversation, Mu asked me to clarify, and I quote, the industry has come up with the same requirements and codes of conduct years ago, and yet the audits still could not prevent human rights abuses from happening. It takes more than a transactional audit to build a responsible supply chain. Making brands legally responsible for the behavior of their supply chain doesn't mean that the relationship will be less transactional, end quote. I think this industry has gone from setting a minimum requirement to ensure that all the uh, check and balance, I mean, all the, the social labor things are uh, fulfilled by the factories and ideal factories, and then go into check, balance, check, balance, and 
going, took it into a very extreme uh, side that we all forgot why we do the auditing, actually. We forgot what is the intentions. It's, it's just to keep the minimum, actually. But it's, it's not showing that you are responsible uh, factories. No. It's just reflecting that, well, at least you are minimum there. But the intention, like what Andre said, is, is not really showing there. I'll just add a, 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 a few things um, that I think also provide some, some more color. You know, when I first started in, in, in the social audit industry and even to now, and, and a lot of our, my work crosses not just, you know, working with brands, but it's also working with governments. Um, I want to also mention that as of June 25th, uh, there will be a law uh, that's enacted that require in the in the U.S. that requires companies um, legally to to look into their supply chains, and so th- there is that movement. And obviously, all of you are aware of the the changes with the mandatory due diligence laws happening um, in in places like Germany and the Netherlands and France, and and so you the the legal framework of looking into or being required to be responsible for the the behaviors of your supply chains and of your partners. It's certainly going in that direction. But uh, you can also say that even with that framework, you still don't address the issue of what's the intention of the people in the framework, right? And uh, the analogy I would give you is that for for the last 20 years, I've always heard comparisons of the social audit industry to the financial industry, right? And and when you when you hear about social auditors being professional, you know, you, you always hear these these comparisons of standards and and accounting. And, um, and, you know, I would say in the beginning, I I kind of bought into that. I was like, okay, we need to be like, you know, the PWCs and the KPMGs and and sort of emulate how these organizations work. But later on, you know, sort of as I progressed in, 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 in my career and started kind of looking and questioning things, one of the things that came to my mind was, wait a minute, we are not managing pieces of paper, per se, we're managing human life on the other end. And so therefore, if the measurement is safety of people, health of people, um, 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 uh, financial security of people, how are we compared to, how is this industry setting itself up to be like a paper industry, right? Uh, it should be more so setting itself up to be like a healthcare industry, where you have a concern about public interest and humanity and things of that nature. And and I draw your attention to this because when you look at a lot of the allegations coming from people doing research into the industry, they talk about things that have to do with uh, checklists, right? (laughs) And and, uh, uh, not having humanity in the process and, and not caring about the workers. And when you kind of look at the development of this industry and what they hold as a benchmark and what it should look like and how it should be, it starts to make sense, right? You have to kind of zoom back out and say to yourself, well, wait a minute, there's a design here that doesn't have a clear intention of whether or not we are creating something in the public interest, whether we're creating something in the company's interest, whether we're creating something in the worker's interest. So you have all these design issues 
uh, around what this is supposed to do. And then you have an industry that's emulating itself to replicate a financial industry that has more to do with documents than with humans. Uh, And so when you put that together, you have a perfect storm of something that really doesn't get close (laughs) to, to what the the questions are that are coming from the per- public and so as we look forward the the real question becomes how do we create alignment and uh, what people perceive this industry should be doing and what in reality is actually taking place yeah and this is in a way the perfect segue to the next part of this conversation which is about the standards, right? Because I think in in the conversations that I had with some of you in the lead up to this to this uh, to this conversation or to this recording, one of the things that I kind of heard in different ways from each of you was that, like, yeah, the checklist. There, there's no, you know, there's no, I like this, the way that you put it, Andre, there's no humanity in the checklist, but also, you know, okay, so then what should, what should the standard be? And should there be, when we're talking about human beings, should there be a universal standard or a way of defining what well-being is or, you know, social compliance you know, as a stand-in for that? Or do we need different rules or different standards for different contexts? And who should get to decide what this word social compliance even means? And Chivam, I want to turn to you because one of the things you've said to me in the past is we need to open ourselves up to complexity. We can't take a cookie cutter approach to this. And when I say cookie cutter, the word checklist comes to mind, you know, that's been thrown around. But, you know, why? And uh, you know, why did you have this sentiment and, and how do you think do things differently at at, uh, at Benno? Um so to answer one part of the question you just asked is who gets to decide what the standard is, I don't know, and I think I'm probably part of that hypocrisy, to be honest, because we created our own standard at the brand. Um, but this kind of goes back to what Andre was also saying, like, how do you bring humanity to the checklist, to these standards? And we created something called the banner standard, which is bottom up rather than top down. Um, and we did a lot of work at a grassroots level with garment workers and artisans, asking them candidly through key informants in the localized context, what mattered to them, what they wanted, what they needed, rather than us making these presumptions from top down about what that could look like. And I did not do it myself because also this conversation of privilege and me coming from the West, from like a very different context. So it needed to be community members that would kind of allow these conversations to really happen. Um, So the reason we did this is because there cannot be a cookie cutter approach in my opinion, because in a country like India, there's so much nuance within 50 kilometers, you know, so it's become very difficult to kind of generalize this community so simplistically. So I think that's the reason why we do believe that every region that we work with a factory, the approach will be different. Um, We have overarching principles that govern what we try to implement or work with in every um, region, but it's not necessarily the same rules or same implementation strategy that we have for each of our factories. Moo, I want to turn to you. What are your what are your thoughts? I agree that 
it took customized relationship, I would say like that, probably, because it doesn't make sense if we audit the same factory who has been growing for 10 years, 20 years, every year with the same checklist. What's for, actually? When there's a fire in Bangladesh, everyone starts to realize that our standard is not enough. But the question is, all those years when we are doing the audits, we are looking at the same thing, at the same factories. So how could we miss that? The checklist doesn't make sense. I mean, you will not be able to identify things that a factory should be able to grow from that, actually. You will not be able to see the benefit of doing the audit. I probably could not ha- do not have the answer to that, but I do understand that the complexity of the industry have created that, actually. Because um, in the other side, there are certain parties who want to guarantee. So in doing that, we use the auditing or the checklist differently than what it should meant to be. From a factory perspective, I was expecting like, um, let's grow together, brands, factories, and then you point us what we need to do. But instead, there's many transactional things happening. Um, this is a fast-moving world, <laughs> the industry. So everything needs to happen very fast. Uh, as long as you you tell us that you're complying, then we are fine, and then let's do business, and then that's it. They don't really care about what we are doing for growing the sustainability. So sustainable factory become meaningless in this purpose, actually. Let us look at how the standard has evolved, notwithstanding the reference to how it is being put in inverted commas as a checklist. Okay, let, let's put it uh, in perspective. The compliance audit of the social audit ecosystem is a culmination of the collective wisdom of several stakeholders. Stakeholder number one, the national governments. Stakeholder number two, the employers. Stakeholders number three, the labor unions, the NGOs and the activists and the brands. Now, we would be doing a great disservice if we were to discount it as a checklist because I believe that it has been a culmination of the collective wisdom and value addition that has garnered over a period of time. This in no way discounts the fact that there could be audit deception, there could be a lack of intention, there could be a space where the best practices, the most humanitarian practices, the most ideal of human beings survive. A very heavenly kind of esoteric creation. That's absolutely not done. So we as a a company have taken the approach of um, throwing away the checklist. And I I know that's going to sound radical, uh, for an organization that relies on on accuracy and credibility of information and, and consistency of collection and all those things, um, but but the reason we've thrown out the the checklist is because we, we don't think the tool should be leading the human in in, in some res, in, in in some respect. We think that there has to be a way to start the work from a shared view. Of, of intentions as well as checks and balances. And, and by throwing out the checklist, what that has allowed us to do is actually re-engineer things or rewire things from the bottom up. 
And and so when we or when brands approach us and they want to engage, um, we are having a conversation about what claims they are attempting to make around products. You know, what are the claims that you want to make? Uh, because once we understand what claims they're making around the products, then we can start to talk to them about the intentions and the checks and balances and the things that are needed so that those claims don't translate into greenwashing, intention washing, or any of those things. And, and I think that's an important role that an audit firm has to step up or an assessment firm has to step up and, and take, right? I think when we talk about stakeholders, a lot of the uh, uh, audit firms have kind of hidden in the in the background, right? And, and it's very uh, difficult to even understand what their standards are or what where they stand in, in, in any of this. It's almost like uh, we just follow what anyone tells us to do, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. And, and, and I think that's not the the direction of the future uh and so when we are engaging you know not only are we engaging from the standpoint of understanding what claims need to be made and working backwards but it's the same thing with factories you know when we're engaging with factories we're also engaging from the perspective of understanding what are the micro specific issues that they are facing, right? And, and and from an operational management perspective, from a worker perspective, and, and sort of let's build the indicators and the reference points around that. And so what you get from that sort of, of output is you obviously don't get very symmetrical sort of, uh, you know, uh, pass-fail sort of reporting. What, what, what you get is more of an understanding of where organizations are um, um, in terms of their journey, right? And and so the, the hope here is that the future looks closer to being able to understand how the intention and the impact uh, from both a, a manufacturing perspective and a brand perspective meet, right? Where they both sort of uh, collide on this perspective. And, and, and uh, for most people, it's a daunting thought that we're going to implement this um, um, across complex supply chains. A lot of people told me, Andre, it's not scalable. And I said, you know, I disagree. I, I just believe it's a different way of working, thinking, processing. And, and so we've been able to, to move from that model in a smaller scale to sort of a medium-sized scale now. That's really interesting. Um, and it, in a way, segues perfectly to what I wanted to ask you, Mu, but I want to respond, take a quick second to respond, because one of the things that I've often thought of about, but I didn't, I don't know how you would set it up, but I've also always kind of thought like, maybe instead of like a compliance audit, maybe this should be about like matchmaking. Because one of the things that I often felt when I was a factory manager was that actually like, okay, there were all these things I was supposed to do, you know, um, uh, for social compliance audits. And often like it was just impossible for me to do them all. And it wasn't because I wasn't committed to the cause or didn't believe in it. It was because as a business leader, I had to make trade-offs and make decisions. So for example, if there was an order that uh, was, you know, really, I was really under pressure to put out, right? Um, and not finishing that order on time would probably mean, you know, having the order be canceled and not making payroll. Then which one do I put first? 
Is it working hours or is it paying people? You know, and it, and and <laughs> this is a little bit of a simplified example, but I often found myself in situations where it was like, well, I, I just can't do it all. And it's not because I don't believe in it. It's because like, you know, sometimes one goal is actually inherently like when you're in a, on an operational level, achieving one sort of good thing or normative goal or whatever you want to call it ends up in contradiction with another. And I felt really isolated as a factory manager. Like, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Which one do I put first? And I felt like I had to decide for myself which one was more important, which I was not comfortable with, you know? And like, I, I kind of, I often wondered like, you know, maybe this whole conversation should be more about like matchmaking. And like you just described Andre, like, what is it? Like how, what is important to a brand? What is important to a factory? Do those things align? If I have a choice between X and Y and I choose for X, would that brand also want me to choose for X or would that brand want me to choose for Y? And to sort of create, could we sort of leverage auditing to somehow like create a structured way of having this conversation and creating a matchmaking exercise? Like me as a factory, I value A, B, C, and D. Me as a brand, I also value A, B, C, and D. Great, let's come together. Mu, I want... I want to, to turn to you because I know you you shared with me um, last time we spoke that one of the brands that you produce for actually doesn't audit you anymore and that instead you collaborate on specific issues. So I'm curious to hear more about that and whether you think it's effective. I do still think audit is necessary as a basic to kind of like um, tell people where we are, that we are diligently do our homework to keep things in place. That's a yes. But we we kind of like feel like a criminal being expected by many different police from different countries actually checking out the same thing. But of course, I mean, uh, we have been auditing by many people, by many brands for the same thing. Why don't you just take it want and then everyone use the same thing right and we can move on on the more progressive thing or more advanced things that you would like to see we can talk and it doesn't necessarily need to be translated to audit but you can talk to us yes like one of the brand really don't audit us but they just ask us if we have been audited by any brands any you know third party and we just share it to them because it's just the basic things. They just want to to make sure that we are doing the basic and we just share with them those audit report. But then instead of that, then we start to collaborate on the things which they think is necessary, which they would like to see us implementing as a, a more advanced factory that we have been working for years, actually. The, the 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 most important thing is, is do you really want to grow with us or you just want to see transactional things to the report if if you, what you want to see is just assurance then of course everyone will ask for auditing reports checklists and they think the more we get the checklist comprehensive that means the more we assurance that the factory will do all the things that we ask so it's kind of like, is the audit, it comes back to this question of intent, which Andre opened with, right? Like, is the social audit a tool of assurance or is it a tool that could facilitate conversation? Um, or is it assurance, but then on top of that, we also need a conversation. 
you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 